Section 17 of The World War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. The World Story, Volume 15, The World War. Edited by Horatio W. Dresser. Section 17. The Fall of Antwerp, 1914, by Horace Green. The invasion of Belgium began with the attack upon Liège, which was followed by the destruction of one town or city after another, till Brussels was taken August 20th, and then more two days later. With the fall of Brussels, the Belgian army withdrew to Antwerp, which was besieged for ten days prior to its fall, October 9th. The Belgian army escaped south through Ostend to the Iser, north of Dunkirk. The Editor Antwerp, the temporary capital of Belgium, was at this time invested, but not yet besieged, by the German army. On the south, the city was already cut off by several regiments of the Ninth and Tenth German Army Corps and General von Bohn. The river Scheldt and the Dutch border formed a wall on the north and west. It was to Antwerp, therefore, that we determined to go. Judging from the looks of the country and the burning villages, we were on the heels of a devastating army. For three, four, and five miles on either side of the road, beautiful trees lay flat upon the ground. It was not until we saw groups of Belgian soldiers tearing down their own walls and hedges, and applying match and gasoline to those which still stood, that we realized that this was a case of self-inflicted destruction. Farmhouses, stores, churches, old Belgian mansions, and windmills were either in flames or smoldering ruins. Where burning had not been sufficient, powder and dynamite had been applied to destroy landmarks, which for centuries had been the country's pride. As far as the eye could reach, the countryside was flattened to a desert. The devastation was for the defensive purpose of giving an unobstructed view to the cannon of Antwerp's outer fortifications, which, on that side, covered one sector of the circle swept by her enormous guns. I should hesitate to mention the millions of dollars of self-inflicted damage to Antwerp suburbs alone. There is no need of describing in detail Antwerp at the time of my first visit. One or two pictures will suffice to give a rough idea of its existence up to the time of the bombardment. Try to imagine, for example, going about your business in New York or Boston or Los Angeles when your country, a territory perhaps the size of the New England states, was already two-thirds overrun, burnt, smashed, and conquered by a hostile nation, whose forces were now within nineteen miles of the gates of the capital. Imagine that nation's warriors in the act of crushing your tiny army, whose remnants were already exhausted and on the verge of despair. Then picture a quaint, sleepy city, with shadowy alleys and twisting, gabled streets, in which every other store and house was decorated with King Albert's picture, draped in the red, black, and yellow banner of the country, a city whose atmosphere was charged with fear and suspicion and excitement. Sometimes a crowd of a thousand or two drew one toward the central station, where bedraggled refugee families, just arrived from Liège, Termonde, Erchaux, and Malines, stood on street corner or wagon top, and thrilled the crowd with tales of atrocities and the story of their flight from their burning homes to the south. Now and then the crowd parted before the clanging bell of a Red Cross ambulance, 
rushing its load of bleeding bodies to the hospitals along the Place de Mir. Nurses, male or female, clung to the ambulance steps. During the daytime, the ordinary things of life went on, for the good burghers and shopkeepers went about their business as usual, and generally speaking, fought against fear as bravely as the soldiers in the trenches stood up against the German howitzers. It was only after dark, when martial law permitted no lights of any kind, that the city seemed to shiver and suck in its breath. Doors were barricaded, iron shutters came down, and behind them people talked in whispers. Such, very briefly, was the condition of Antwerp at the time we arrived. That very evening word came that the Belgian forces, which had been engaged with the enemy for five consecutive days of severe fighting, had retired behind the southern ramparts of the city. During the night the stream of incoming wounded confirmed the news of battle. In the moonlight, and later in the gray dawn, I watched the long lines of Belgian hounds, pulling their rapid-fire guns toward the trenches. Many times later I was destined to see them. They made a picturesque and stimulating sight, those faithful dogs of war, fettered and harnessed, their tongues hanging out as they lay patiently beneath the gun trucks, awaiting the order to go into action, or, when the word had been given, trotted along the dusty roads, each pair tugging to the battlefront a lean, gray engine of destruction. Though not officially admitted to the besieged city at the time of the second visit, I went at once to my old stand, the Hotel Saint-Antoine, now converted into British staff headquarters. At sundown, a mist crept up from the river, and through it we heard a roar of welcome and the rumble of heavy artillery. Charging down the Avenue de Kaiser came a hundred London motor buses, Piccadilly signs and all, some filled, some half-filled, with a wet-looking bunch of Tommies, followed by armored mitrailleuses, a few 6.7 naval guns, officers' machines, commissary and ammunition carriages, the 1st Brigade of Winston Churchill's Army of Relief, which for five days was destined to make so valiant but so short a fight against the overwhelming German army. There was something typically British in the way those Englishmen went about the defense of Antwerp, in the streets and barracks, and more especially at the Saint Antoine, where I stayed until its doors were closed, I saw them at close range during that week of horror. Once, when I was eating with a company of Marines near their temporary barracks, they gave me the password to the trenches, and although I only got as far as the inner line of forts on that day, it gave me an opportunity to observe the work of the men under long range firing. Here was Belgium's last stronghold, on the verge of downfall. The outer line of forts had already fallen. Forts Wavre, St. Catherine, Velham, and Lierre were already prey to the Krupp mortars. The German hosts were swarming across the river Neth, six miles to the city south, and the cowering populace in their flight made the streets terrible to look upon. Yet, at the Saint Antoine, there was no particular flurry, so far at least as the officers were concerned. At night, they worked over their war maps. In the daytime, they went out to the forts. If only two or three of a group returned, you would naturally have to draw your own conclusions as to the fate of the rest. Those English gentlemen went about their jobs of life and death with the same detached coolness as if their hunters were being saddled or they were waiting for the referee's whistle in rugby football. Their attitude was infernally exasperating, yet you couldn't help taking off your hat to their sublime nerve and indifference. 
By that time, we of Antwerp were getting a very fair imitation of a city besieged. Water supply had already been cut off for some days. There was just enough for cooking purposes. Bathing in such pleasantries were out of the question, even for royalty. Monday, October 5th, the night before the city emptied itself of non-combatants, was almost a festive occasion at the Saint Antoine. The British army gave tremendous confidence to the stricken city and the tired Belgian soldiers, a bit of pride before the fall. New faces turned up, friends in the English army met, shook hands, and discussed the outlook. In the flash of an eye, these scenes changed to scenes of terror. The news leaked out and spread like wildfire that the Kaiser's men had crossed the river Neat and had placed their big guns within range of the city. It was not until 48 hours later that the populace saw a handful of Flemish posters pasted in out-of-the-way corners, posters signed by the civil government, which thanked the populace for retaining until the present time their praiseworthy sang-froid and regretting that the responsibilities of their office necessitated their own removal to a neighborhood more safe. Then came the flight. You knew the fear of the Germans had gotten into their blood when waiters dropped their plates and dishes and ran, when shops, houses, hotels closed, and the people melted away, when the French chambermaid besought with frightened eyes that Monsieur would take her away to England, and when the hotel proprietor disappeared without even asking for his bill. Here on the waterfront was a sight to come again and rend the memory. The crowds were endeavoring to get away on one of the two avenues still open. I estimated that between five in the afternoon and the following dawn, 300,000 persons must have passed through the city's gates. They were the people of Antwerp itself, swelled by exiles from Alost, Erschot, Malines, Termond, and other cities to the south and west. Intermittently, for two days and nights, I watched them from my room in the Queen's. From five yards beneath my window ledge came the shuffle-shuffle of unending feet, the creaks and groans of heavy cartwheels, the talk and babble of guttural tongues, the yelp of hounds as the thousands moved and wept and surged and jostled along throughout the night and into the uncertain mist of that October morning. They were so close I could have jumped into their carts or dropped a pebble on their heads. Infinitely more impressive than the retreat of the Allied armies or the victorious entry of the Germans a little later, was the pageant of this pitiful army, without guns or leaders. The twenty-foot entrance to that pontoon bridge seemed to me like the mouth of a funnel through which poured the dense misery of an entire nation. Think of this army's composition. A great city was emptying itself of human life. Not only a great city, but all the people driven to it from the outside, all who had congregated in Belgium's last refuge and its strongest fort. They bore themselves bravely, the greater number plodding along silently in the footsteps of those who went ahead with no thoughts of their direction, some of them even chatting and laughing. You saw great open wagons carrying baby carriages, perambulators, pots and kettles, an old chair, huge bundles of household goods, and the ubiquitous Belgian bicycle strapped on the side. There were small wagons and more great wagons crowded with twenty, thirty, forty people, aged brown women buried like shrunk walnuts in a mass of shawls, girls sitting listlessly on piles of straw, and children fitfully asleep or very much awake and crying lustily. In this way the city emptied itself, but so slowly that the very slowness of the movement wore the marchers out. Each family group was limited to the speed of its oldest member. 
Hundreds gave it up and lay by the road, or formed little gypsy camps under the trees. At night these were lighted by fires, overshadowed by the greater fire from the distant burning city, and beside them stretched dumb-looking souls, watching vaguely those who still had the strength to move. Watching these wretches got so on my nerves that I had to get out and do something. With a British intelligence officer, formerly of Sir John French's staff, I wandered down to the southern quarter of the city known as Bershem. As usual, the guns at the outer forts had been booming through the evening. From the city's ramparts, you could not only feel the shudder of the earth, but you could see the occasional splashes of flame from the Belgian batteries, answered in the dim distance to the south by smaller, less vivid splashes issuing from the mouths of the German instruments of culture, which throughout the night pounded ruthlessly on the unprotected houses within the city limits. On the way, we stopped in at the British Field Hospital to see a wounded British friend. As we left the hospital on the Rue de Leopold, a shrieking skyrocket whizzed by above us and buried its hissing head in the river to the north. One or two more fell at a distance of several hundred yards, and in the southern part of the city, flames from several houses shot up into the quiet, windless night. The bombardment was on. The time was 12.07, Wednesday midnight. For a moment, I did not realize that this was the beginning of the end of Antwerp. I had heard so much gunfire and seen so many bombs dropping from aeroplanes that I did not fully appreciate the significance of these shells. As I walked down the Avenue de Kaiser, the next morning, I thought at first it was Sunday, or rather a year of Sundays all rolled into one. Overnight, the city had been transformed into a tomb. Shops were closed. Iron shutters were pulled down everywhere. Trolley cars stood in the streets as they had been left. My own footsteps resounded fearfully on the pavement, and I walked five blocks before I saw a human being. All Thursday afternoon, the German Taubes circled above the city, mostly along the waterfront. Below them puffed little clouds of smoke where the Belgian anti-aircraft guns were exploding. I fancy the airmen were locating the pontoon bridge and signaling the battery commanders six miles away. But during Wednesday and Thursday, when the crowds of refugees were assembled on the waterfront, not a single bomb dropped among them. A few shells well-placed would have slaughtered them like sheep. Before and during the bombardment, I am quite certain that the Germans intended to frighten rather than injure non-combatants. The bombardment lasted 40 hours. That night, Thursday, October 8th, the second and last night, which the town held out, all of the Americans were gathered at the Queen's. The firing by this time was terrific. Except for the lurid glare of the burning buildings which lit up the streets, the city was in total darkness. About an hour after darkness settled on us, I climbed to the roof of the Queen's Hotel, from which, for a few minutes, I looked out upon the most horrible and at the same time the most gorgeous panorama that I ever hoped to see. The entire southern portion of the city appeared a desolate ruin. Whole streets were ablaze, and great sheets of fire rose to the height of thirty or forty feet. Even more glorious was the scene to the north. On the opposite side of the Scheldt, the oil tanks— the first objects to be set on fire by bombs from the German Taubes were blazing furiously and vomiting huge volumes of oil-laden smoke. Looking over on this side of the river, too, I could see the crackling wooden houses of the village of St. Nicholas, lighting with their glow all of northern Antwerp and the waterfront. In the swampy meadows on the farther bank, 
we could see the frightened refugees as they hurried along the still-protected road to Ghent. They passed on our side of the burning village, not five hundred yards away. Every now and then, as a fitful flame lighted the meadow, I could see the figures silhouetted against the red background. They appeared to be actually walking through the flames. There was at this time an ominous lull in the moaning pound of shrapnel. Out of the darkness in the direction of West Antwerp came a new sound, the low, methodical beat of feet. The noise became gradually louder and louder until one could hear the rumble of heavy wheels and distinguish the sound of voices above the crowd. This was the beginning of the British and Belgian retreat, which started at about eight o'clock Thursday night and under cover of darkness continued unbroken for eight hours. Following the line taken by the escaping populace, this retreat went past our position on the waterfront. Before dawn on Friday morning, when the light became strong enough for the advancing army to make out the enemy's position, practically the entire Belgian army, plus 10,000 Royal British Naval Marines, had got across the pontoon bridge and were well along the road to Ghent. During all these hours, squads of gendarmes with fixed bayonets held back such remaining townsfolk as attempted to get near the bridge. To these wretches, it seemed that their last avenue of escape had been cut off. Remaining in the city as long as possible, Mr. Green at length started for the pontoon bridge to escape into Holland, when a more terrible explosion than any that had been heard before rocked the city to its foundation. The retreating Belgian army had blown up the bridge, apparently cutting off the last avenue of escape. Mr. Green managed to clamber aboard a river barge laden to the sinking point with Antwerp's peaceful burghers and their dumb-looking women and children and from this barge, which landed a few miles down the Scheldt, he made his way to Rusendal, just across the Dutch border. End of section 17. This recording is in the public domain.